weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior. Emmanuel Church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, friend of sinners. Now here's this week's message. Good afternoon, Emmanuel. It's a blessing to be here. It's a privilege to be here. And uh, just to see the church continue to grow is just a, a joy to my heart. So, um, Jason, can you make this Asian height, not Jason Barris height? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, our church prays for you regularly. Uh, you guys are in our prayer bulletins. Um, and... Uh, it's been a blessing to, uh, to serve you. Thanks, Jason. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll just put my notes here. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. All right, beloved. Let me, let me uh, pray for us. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that you do not deal with us according to our iniquities. You do not repay us according to our iniquities, yet you are a, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that you are more willing to pardon than punish. There's more mercy in you than sin in us because mercy is your nature. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to your throne of grace boldly because of the righteousness we have in Christ. We ask you to bless Emmanuel Church. We ask that you would grant godly men of character, raise up more elders and deacons to help shepherd this precious flock. Lord, continue to supply abundantly through your riches of glory in Christ Jesus so that this church would continue to preach your gospel. Lord, as this church continues to plant and water, we acknowledge only that you give the increase. Lord, bless Jason and Bev's recent trip to Dubai, strengthen existing relationships, build new ones, and may there much, be much spiritual fruit and service to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the holidays are approaching, um, I know some of you are already looking at Black Friday deals, and uh, I think something that everyone in this room needs to add in their Amazon wish list is knowing God by J.I. Packer. Outside of the local church and my own Bible reading, one of the greatest means in my own sanctification is the reading of good Christian books. And uh, Packer was an Anglican pastor. Uh, he was actually a Puritan scholar. And uh, he asked the question, what is a Christian? And he says, the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that the Christian knows God as Father. He knows God as Father. If I were to ask you, what, what is the highest blessing of the gospel? I think majority would say that the highest blessing of the gospel is forgiveness. But Packer says that the highest blessing of the gospel is that we get to be called children of the living God. Justification is central, it's fundamental. But the highest privilege of the gospel is that we get to be called sons and daughters of the living God. Packer says that in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He established us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of relationship. To be right with God the judge, justification is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, adoption, is even greater. The apex of salvation, the Puritans would say, is the doctrine of adoption. Joel Beakey, a Puritan scholar, says that understanding this doctrine helps us, number one, have peace and comfort, 
Number two, experience God's love. Number three, readiness for duty. Number four, liberty in prayer. And number five, victory over Satan. Uh, I commend to you, uh, Joel Beakey, uh, he did a Puritan conference on the Puritan doctrine of adoption. He turned it into a book. I commend uh, that, that sermon to you um, if you look online for it. So in Romans chapter 8, which is called the, the greatest chapter in the Bible, Paul wants to give us three proofs, three proofs that we are truly children of God so that we can be assured that we are heirs of Christ. Three proofs that show that you are truly a child of God so that you can be assured that you're an heir of Christ. Paul has been building an argument in the book of Romans. The first three chapters really describes the universal condemnation of man because of our sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 4, 5, and 6 really begins to elaborate the, the doctrine of justification by faith. And then Romans 7 speaks of the, the, the struggle that the Christian faces. And then Romans chapter 8 uh, speaks that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We've been set free by the work of Christ and the Spirit who indwells within us. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that we now have God's Spirit. Verse 11 says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. And now we pick up in Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 17, which is in your bulletin, but you can read along with me. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, this is the word of God. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. May the good Lord add the blessing to the reading of his holy word. So, first proof that you're truly a child of God is that you kill sin by the Holy Spirit. You kill sin by the Holy Spirit. Now, when I'm speaking of being a child of God, I'm not, I'm not speaking of what uh, Gresham Machen, the Princeton theologian, was arguing 100 years ago in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Uh, liberalism was infiltrating se uh, seminaries at the time, uh, Princeton, and, and one teaching was saying that, you know, God's a father to everybody. The universal fatherhood of, of God and the universal brotherhood of man. I'm not, I'm not speaking of, about that. I'm, I'm speaking of those who have been born again by God's Spirit, who are the true children of God. Those who have been born again, born from above, this is what I'm speaking about. Um, our congregation, we, we have a lot of Filipinos, and uh, they celebrate Christmas in September. And I confess to you that I've already put my Christmas tree up in November. And if you think about a Christmas tree, right, think about a Christmas tree. Um, some of us, we, we, we get um, fake trees because of the mess. But really, a Christmas tree, uh, when you buy a Christmas tree, it, it begins to die, right? Because you cut, the, you, you cut it off. And what a Christmas tree is, is you really put external ornaments on, on something that's, that's dead. Well, 
Christians or professing Christians can go through the motions, going to church, uh, reading the Bible, uh, doing Christian things, but not truly be alive, as opposed to a real tree, right? Whereas a real tree that's connected to a root has a life-giving principle, a life-giving power that produces fruit. And as Christians, we, we want to be real trees that bear fruit by which we glorify God. And one of the ways we bear fruit is by killing our sin. Notice in verse 12, Paul says, So then, brothers, we, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Flesh sums up our, our rebellious desires, our rebellious nature against this holy God. Uh, the flesh refers to that which is, uh, goes against contrary to the things of the Lord. And Paul says we have been transported from, from that realm of sin and death, and now we are in a realm of life and righteousness because of the work of Christ. He says we're no longer debtors. He's using the language of, of the marketplace. Uh, we're, we're no longer slaves to our own employer's sin. We have a new master. The old employer has nothing on us. And Paul just gives a statement of fact in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, if you touch a hot stove, your hand will get burned. That's, that's, a, that's a fact. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you live according to the Spirit, you will live. Now, uh, single men, uh, I don't recommend that you do this, but when I was dating my wife to impress how godly I was, for her birthday, I bought her The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Uh, she eventually gave that book back to me. <laughs> but, um, but John Owen famously said in The Mortification of Sin, which is an exposition of this uh, passage, he says, be killing sin, our sin will be killing you. Uh, the King James translates the putting to death of sin as mortification. Uh, mortification, John Owen defines it as a habitual weakening of lust, a constant fight against sin, and a degree of success or progress in the battle. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. You do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, to mortify is to put to death, to, to render inoperative, to, to make extinct, to crucify. The work of the Christian is to crucify these sinful desires. In a world that tells you that you are your desires or embrace your desires or celebrate your desires, the Bible tells you you need to crucify your sinful desires. You need to crucify your sinful desires. So Christian, a simple application. Are you waging war against your sin? Are you fighting sin? Are you crucifying sin? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks with a woman with lust in his heart, lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her. If your right eye causes you to sin, he says, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's speaking of hyperbole. He's saying, take radical measures to crucify and kill your sin. Because notice in verse 14, it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Or Galatians 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under the law of condemnation. You've been set free. 
And to be led by the Spirit is not a subjective experience. It's not a mystical thing about thinking about what college to go to or what house to buy or, or, or some decision-making. To be led by the Spirit is to be conformed to Christ, to, to be sanctified. That's what Paul says. To be led by the Spirit is to kill sin. And that's how you know that you are a true Christian. And by the way, when I say mortify, that's why it says you have to do it by the Spirit. Because if it's not done by the Holy Spirit, it makes you a proud Pharisee, a self-righteous person. John Owen says that mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention to the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. Things we see in the Middle East, why do you think there is such extremism going on? Because these works are being done by the flesh, not by the Spirit. It's interesting, as I'm reading the older catechisms and even uh, John Calvin, uh, when we speak of repentance, we we define repentance as a a change of mind, right? Or a 180 turn. Do you know how the Reformers define repentance? They define repentance as the mortification of the flesh and the quickening and the renewal of the Spirit. The mortification of the flesh and the quickening and the renewal of the Spirit. The Geneva Catechism, which Calvin helped craft, he says that repentance is a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness proceeding from the fear of God, leading us to the denial and mortification of the flesh, so that we may give ourselves to be governed by the Holy Spirit and perform all the actions of our lives in obedience to the will of God. And uh, one of the great idols of our day, beloved, is uh, in the first century they called it the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. One of the great idols today is the god of sexual sin, the god of sex. Like I said, there's a whole movement with LGBTQ propaganda, which celebrates sin. We label that as virtuous in the name of love and inclusion. Sexual sin and sexual identity are the idols of our day. Mega church pastor named Andy Stanley got himself in trouble a couple weeks ago where he hosted a conference called Unconditional, where some of the speakers who were men, quote-unquote, married to other men, speaking. And he said that Jesus didn't draw lines with people. He drew circles. In other words, Jesus, Jesus loved all sorts of sinners, and that's true, but we must understand that Jesus didn't affirm people in their sin. He called people to repent of their sin. So when we tell a whole movement of people, it's okay to live in your sin, it's okay to be in your sin, you're actually sending people to hell in the name of love. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Not only sexual sin, but what are we doing with our minds? What are we doing with our hearts? What are we doing with our hands? We must fight against pride, against lust, against greed, gluttony, envy, anger, wrath, sloth, what the medievals called the seven deadly sins. We must wholly be consecrated to the Lord if we are truly children of God. And, and as a church, we, we must fight sin together. That's why God has placed you in a local church. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is, it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need a church to help fight sin together. God has given you the body of Christ, His Word, His Spirit, to help you fight sin. That's why we're not to neglect the meeting together of one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We don't want to become isolated people. That's one of the Satan's tactics. Isolate you from the people of God so that you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we see the whole deconstruction movement, right? You want to isolate 
the, isolate the person from the church and start criticizing the bride of Christ, and that leads into apostasy. You need the church. That's why there's church discipline. Church discipline is a corrective action by which we are seeking to restore the sinner, found in Matthew 18. I think Pastor Jason preached on that. John Owen says that if you want to deal with your sin, you need to use the law, the Ten Commandments. Let the law do its work by reflecting your sinfulness. The, the, the Ten Commandments is a mirror to show us our pollution of sin. But the greatest way to fight sin is to think of the gospel. Owen says, set your faith upon Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. This is how a Christian speaks in regards to fighting sin. Listen to Owen here. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this how I pay back the Father for His love? Is this how I thank God, the Son, for His blood? Is this how I respond to the Holy Spirit for His grace? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash and the Holy Spirit to dwell in? I don't want to sin against grace. Grace does not strengthen sin. Grace actually strengthens us to kill sin, if you understand grace. So number one, true heirs of God mortify their sin, kill their sin by the Holy Spirit. Second of all, the true children of God, the true heirs of God, commune with God as their Father. Commune with God as their Father. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines adoption as the act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Notice verse 15 and 16 with me. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit of slavery represented life before Christ, condemnation, bondage, enslaved to your, your sinful passions, a state of condemnation, but Christ has freed us. No condemnation in Christ. He has sent the spirit of adoption into our hearts. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but one of love and self-control and power. The word adoption is not common in the New Testament, being used only uh, by Paul, and five times that is. In the Roman world, the, the way uh, even the Caesars would, would try to produce an heir was through adoption. The, they would receive the benefits, the privileges of, of, of the, the legal status of, of being one of the Caesars or one of, of those who were trying to adopt. And notice that the, the word here, the, the word cry is an interesting word. It's, it's, it's a loud cry. It's a shriek. It's, it's like the crying of a baby. Uh, please turn with me to, I was reading this this morning, but Roman, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 7 and in Hebrews verse 5 and 7, we, we see this word cry here, where uh, Jesus, it says in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Uh, you think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where he says, Abba, Father, uh, remove this cup from me if you, are, if you are willing, but not my will, but your will be done. Seized in Galatians. But uh, for the Jews, uh, they, they viewed God as a transcendent, high and holy being, uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And to call, to call God as Father was almost blasphemous. 
only person that did that was Jesus, saying, Abba, Father. And, and the point here is, is it communicates that the children of God have intimacy with their Father, and they respect God's authority. They respect their Father's authority. Abba was the Aramaic word used of close relationship. It's uh, some scholars, the majority of commentators says it's like the word daddy, uh, the word papa. Um, and uh, some scholars debate whether that's the case. Um, but the point is there's intimacy, there's relationship, um, and there's authority. In the, in the, so Abba is Aramaic, uh, and then uh, pater is, is the Greek word for father, communicating authority. I have a, I have a two-year-old, and uh, he still uses a pacifier. And then whenever he loses his pacifier in the middle of the night, he will shriek, he will scream, and wake the whole household if he does not have his pacifier. And uh, that's the image that, that, that is being used by Paul. There's a loud cry, Abba, Father. The, the children of God have intimate clo- intimacy and closeness with God as their father. This is what makes adoption so beautiful. And not only intimacy, but authority. Again, uh, when we speak of God as Father, we're not being irreverent. We, we respect God as Father. We, we revere God as Father. Jesus himself taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray like this. Our what? Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven. So Christian, how do you relate to God? Is God a genie to you? Granting your magic wishes? Is he a lottery dispenser? In comes prayer and out comes blessing? Do you pray that, that, that God, or you view God as a cruel taskmaster who's just waiting to sh- throw lightning bolts down at you every time you sin? Or do you view God as Father, as Father, one you can turn to, one you can cry to, one you can speak to, one you can find comfort in? Uh, my, uh, my two-year-old again, uh, He's going to turn out really bad because I don't discipline him because uh, he's so cute. Um, he, he will, he's number five, by the way, and uh, he climbs out of his crib at, at 6.30 in the morning, opens our room just to say hi to us at 6.30 a.m. in the morning while we're dead asleep. And he can do that. He, 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 uh, he can do that because he's my son. He's, he, he's my candor boy. There's the intimacy there. There's a love there. And, and, and when the, the Puritans would speak of, of a fear of God, they're, they're not speaking of a fear like the fear of a slave with a cruel master where you're afraid to be beaten and, 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 and struck. No, they're speaking of a fear of a father. John Owen, again, says that God as father is the highest object of all evangelical worship and all of our prayers. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, so Christian, you can come to God as Father. He will give good gifts to you if you ask Him. And if He says no, it's because He knows what's best for you, because He's your Father. Christian, you can go to God. If God is your Father, then that means it revolutionizes how we view prayer. Prayer is not a duty, but prayer is a privilege and a blessing to speak with God. If God is our Father, Jesus is our elder brother, then, 
then we can be in God's households without fear. God is your father, Christian. And by the way, if, if God is your father, then that means the church is your family. Did you know Calvin, Calvin the Reformer, said, quoting from, I think, Cyprian, the church father, he says, you cannot have God as father unless the church is your mother. Whoa, what is going on there? He's not saying that the church is the means of salvation. All he is saying is that the, the most natural place that a Christian grows is nurtured is in the church. That's where a Christian grows, with a family of brothers and sisters, pastors who are to watch over your soul. So if you're not part of a church, what do you mean by God as Father? Because if you love God as Father, you will love His children. Think about 1 John chapter 4. You can't say, I love God, but hate your brother and your sister. If you love your brother and your sister, uh, it shows that you are one of His. And Christian, if, if God is your Father, that means we don't have to worry. Jesus said, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, because God is Father. I was speaking to a, a, a church member who was fearful of the things going on in the Middle East and the wars and, and, and things, that, and it's right to be fearful of these things, but not to be crippled and about these things, because why? Because our Father is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And if God is Father, uh, then we don't have anything to worry about, Christian. It's interesting that Paul himself, as a pastor, would refer to himself as a father. Uh, Paul himself, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, says, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So pastors are not CEOs. They're not trying to build a church. But pastors should be like fathers, have authority and intimacy with the flock. That's a charge to us who are have the privilege of pastoring. Number three, the true heirs of God kill their sin by the Spirit. They commune with God as their Father. And thirdly, they confirm their salvation by their conformity to Christ. They confirm their salvation by their conformity to Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he uh, was the famous Welsh preacher of the 20th century. He wrote or preach over 40 sermons on Romans 8. And I'm stupid enough to read all those sermons. Um, but anyways, uh, he said that in regards to the Reformation, the Reformation was not only a recovery of the doctrine of Scripture, the recovery of the gospel, but it was a recovery of the doctrine of assurance, the doctrine of assurance. He says, if it can be said, in regards to Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 17, he says, if it can be, be said that any one verse constitutes the hallmark of the evangelical Christian, I would say it's this one. It has always been dear to the hearts of evangelical Christians ever since the Protestant Reformation, for there is no other verse which shows so clearly the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism as this particular verse. The Roman Catholic teaching is opposed to their doctrine 
of assurance of salvation. I don't know about you, but if you ever wrestled whether you are truly one of His, this is where Romans 8 comes in, the doctrine of assurance. Here we see in verse 16 that God gives us the witness of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The word that is used is the word martyr, uh, a witness. It's to bear witness with. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Think about a courtroom. Think about the prosecuting side, Satan. He accuses us that we are not children of God, but the advocate or the spirit, even though we cannot speak for ourselves, he presents the evidence of Christ's righteousness where we are by acquitted and all the accusations are dropped and we are welcomed into the family of God. The Spirit tells us that we are children of God. R.C. Sproul has said that our final assurance comes by the testimony of God, the Holy Spirit, who bears witness with and through our spirits that we are children of God. So there's an internal work of God's Spirit that, that verifies that you are one of His, but then there's also the external promises of God, the external promises of God, and even the testimony of a good conscience. So there's an internal subjective witness and the external witness of his promises and us walking like Christ walked. And that's verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, Here, the word heir, uh, you understand that concept if you're a parent, right? Uh, If you thinking about living wills or wills of what to pass on to your your children. An heir would be the one who would receive the assets of your property. Uh, In in my case, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 14 volumes of Romans. Uh, They won't get a house, but they will get Romans. Uh, (laughs) um, But Paul saying we're heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ receives, we receive because he, he is the first fruit of a new humanity. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, un- unfading, kept in heaven for you. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, Paul could be even alluding to Psalm 73, that the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. And an external mark that you are an heir, external mark and arc, mark that you are an heir of Christ, is suffering for Christ, is suffering for Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you are suffering as a Christian, because you are a Christian, it's one of the surest proofs you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God. God works in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces character and character produces hope because the love of God has been poured into us by His Spirit, by which we are sure we are children of the living God. Suffering humbles us, it purifies us, it disciplines us, it trains us, it drives us to prayer, it helps us learn contentment, it assures us that we are one of His. Suffering is redemptive for the Christian, not punitive, it's not a punishment. One of the greatest compliments, if you're a parent, you can receive is, is this. Uh, in, in my, um, on my refrigerator, you have pictures of my kids, picture of my kids, and then every time people look at my kids, uh, they, they say, uh, 
your kids are so, uh, your, your sons are so handsome and your kids are so uh, beautiful. And I say that they get that after their father. One of the greatest compliments a father can uh, hear is that your children, they look like you. And if we're gods, if, if God is our father, we're going to look like Jesus. We're going to look like Christ. We're going to look like children of the living God. Thomas Boston, another Puritan, says, Whose image do you bear? Holiness is God's image, unholiness the devil's. The dark heart and the unholy life plainly tell which family you are of. Holiness is a mark of a Christian. Unholiness is a mark of the children of the evil one. He's, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, said that you, your father is of the devil. And, and there's, no, there's no middle ground. You're either a child of God or you're a child of wrath. You're either born again by God's Spirit or you're in a state of condemnation because of original sin. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me and I will make you children of the living God. Those who receive Jesus Christ, John 1, 12 and 13 says, were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of blood, nor the will of man, but were born of God. Those who receive Christ become children of God are, are what C.S. Lewis would say, one of my favorite Christmas quotes, that the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. He became a man so that we can become children of the living God. So if you're not a Christian, receive Christ, and you can be one of His. Confess your sin, that you have sinned against the holy God, and you deserve judgment, but Christ has come, taking on human nature, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that you should have lived, died on the cross that you should have deserved, and was raised again on the third day. And if you repent and receive Christ, he will make you one of his. And here he tells a story. Uh, Paul says that the story of the Christian is one of suffering before glory, a cross before a crown. It's interesting that Martin Luther would say that what makes a minister is not a seminary degree. What makes a minister is meditation, prayer, and suffering makes the minister. That's what makes a true pastor. Because Paul will later go on to say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So how do you know? How do you know you're a child of God? Number one, you know you're a child of God if you kill sin by the Holy Spirit, you mortify the deeds of the flesh. Number two, you know you're a Christian. You know you're a child of God if you commune with God as Father. And number three, you know you're a Christian if you look like Christ. You resemble the family. And notice the Trinitarian reference there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The work of salvation is to bring us into union and communion with the triune God. I love feel-good stories. I love the classic rag-to-riches story. I think I'm becoming softer as a shepherd. The year was 1933 during the Great Depression. Annie lives in an orphanage run by a cruel alcoholic named Miss Hannigan. She lives a hard-knock life. Annie is invited to live with the richest man at the time, Oliver Warbucks. And as uh, uh, Oliver uh, sends his assistant Grace, I don't know if that's a biblical reference or not, but anyways... Uh, he sends his assistant Grace to fetch Annie, and then as, as he begins spending time with Annie, um, finds out that he's beginning to develop an affection for her. He's developing a love for her. 
Well, he invites her to not only come into his home, but now because of his love for her, he invites her to be adopted. And she's hesitant at first because she thinks her parents are still alive, but Mr. Warbucks has good friends, like the President of the United States, tries to search for uh, the parents, uh, and through the Secret Service, through the Secret Service, uh, finds out that Annie's parents actually passed away a long time ago. And as uh, frauds try to claim Annie, uh, finds out that uh, the, these frauds are exposed, and then, and then Annie eventually uh, receives the invitation to become Annie Warbucks. She becomes Annie the orphan. Now she is Annie Warbucks and receives all the riches that Warbucks offers. And then on Christmas Day, she brings in all the orphans, and all the orphans are opening the Christmas uh, presents. And it's a beautiful, heartwarming story of adoption because she went from rags to riches. And I want to remind you, Christian, that the greatest blessing of the gospel is not that you have been forgiven, but that the greatest blessing of the gospel is that you get to be called a son and daughter of the living God. John put it this way, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The children of God look like their father, look like their elder brother, Jesus, and have the spirit of adoption with him by which we cry, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we get to call you Father. We pray your name would be glorified, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you that you have given us everything we need for a life of godliness. You have forgiven our sin. You have provided all that we need. Lord, would you deliver us from evil and the evil one? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Help us to live like your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you were encouraged and blessed by the word. We'd like to invite you to join us for Sunday worship. If you would like to know our service time and further information, please visit us online at www.emmanueloc.com. And so, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.